When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the X-Fi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Red. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Uh, we're here with uh, Dr. Cynthia Miller-Idris. Uh, Dr. Idris is Professor of Sociology and Education at the American University in Washington, D.C., where she directs the Polarization and extreme, Extremism Research and Innovation Lab called PERIL, great, great initials, in the Center of uh, University Excellence. She is previous author of the Extreme Gone Mainstream Commercialization and For Right Youth Culture in Germany and Blood and Culture, Youth Right-Wing Extremism and Belonging in Contemporary Germany. Well, uh, have we brought Germany to America? Dr. <laughs> Miller Idris, welcome to Politics Done Right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, you just wrote a new book, Hate in the Homeland, the Global for Right. Uh, it's a silly question, given our times. Why did you write the book? It's not a silly question. It's a great question. I mean, and it's a great question, not just because of what's going on at the moment, but it evolved out of, you know, having finished that previous book that you just mentioned called The Extreme Gone Mainstream, which was really about what was happening in Germany and Europe and was based on almost 10 years of research, uh, including ethnography on the ground and a long project working with photographers, um, so an image database of how commercialization had, you know, how clothing had changed, style had changed, um, looking at protests across the country. And I wrote that, and as I turned it in, two months later, um, Charlottesville happened. And so, you know, here I was based in the U.S., and then you have this mainstreaming and normalization show up here, followed by several episodes of extreme violence globally and in the U.S., um, that introduced me to a lot of conversations in the U.S. that I had not been a part of previously because I think people thought, even I myself thought, I was primarily a scholar of sort of fringe subcultures in another country rather than an expert on what was happening in the U.S. And I think that seeing how the European changes in the European youth extremist scene had arrived in the U.S. and what was happening here to kind of modernize the far-right movement and white supremacist extremism, um, Mean, meant that I suddenly had an audience of people here who wanted to know um, about these kinds of things. So I was asked to, you know, testify before Congress and brief, you know, I mean, I'm suddenly in, in meetings with policymakers that I'd never been a part of before. And so I thought there was a lot happening in those conversations that was missing some of what might be a more effective at addressing um, interventions in addressing far-right extremism even before it began, sort of at the very early intervention stage. And so I wrote the book both to explain to a broader American public what I thought was happening, and also to try to change the agenda or set a new agenda for how we might intervene at earlier stages and understand where the mainstreaming is happening. Now, look, for some time uh, in this country, uh, we have known that the, the far-right, the terrorism in this country, more so than 
uh, Islamic or otherwise was coming from that fringe. We knew it. It's not a new yeah. thing. It, well, we knew it before 2016. We knew it before yes. 2012. The FBI was all on it. They've had their in, they, they've had their infiltrators in these organizations. Why is it that it took um, it took the actual well, I'm, I don't even want to say the actual issue of violence because they have already brought down a building in Oklahoma. Why is it that we took so long to see this as a real problem in America? Yeah, I think oh, I think there's a lot of reasons why, and one of which is just you know how 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 hard it is for Americans to recognize extremist ideas if they don't come in a package that fits the idea that they have in their head of what a white explain that is that is that is a very important statement and i i'd like you to articulate it in words because a lot of times people jump around the subject as to why so please tell me why in your eyes so i think i think um most americans think you know if you have white supremacist ideas you must have a swastika tattoo on your head or you know you're with a uh, out in the backwoods militia, and that this. So when when they saw these guys walking across a college campus and you know mainstream University of Virginia campus with khakis and polo shirts, it was a aesthetic shock, right? I mean that's the kind of like people have a hard time recognizing the ideas. White people in particular have a hard time recognizing ideas as extreme if they don't come into in a package that. You know, if they come in a package that's more like the kid next door than the neo-Nazi of their imaginations. And so I think, you know, that's part of it is that there was this mainstreaming and normalization going on. And so you're seeing it seep into the mainstream at the same time as we also had rising numbers of hate groups. You know, that that explosion started after Obama was elected. So you really see this dating back to reaction to the first African-American president getting elected. And then the normalization and mainstream coming later. Um, so I think it's from the fringe into the mainstream, then the normalization and mainstreaming happens. We see it in Charlottesville. And then we start seeing, you know, real upticks in violence that finally drew the attention of people like Congress and Department of Homeland Security to finally issue a report just this year that finally says the most lethal threat facing the nation is from white supremacist extremists. So even if people knew it, you know, and then of course 9-11 right, is looming large in people's heads and, you know, the entire infrastructure that was built around it, including the Department of Homeland Security itself, right, which was created in reaction to 9-11. So you have this entire infrastructure that's built and is telling stories to American people about the ways to keep them safe as being about foreign terrorists, you know, Islamist terrorists, like overseas in some place who are going to infiltrate and infect, you know, homegrown extremism, all the while, while homegrown extremists that are bubbling up, you know, from a from within this country are basically being not totally ignored, because I think you're right, the FBI has been doing, you know, all along has been infiltrating these groups in ways that are that is, you know, often not acknowledged, and that we rely on when you look at the number of foiled plots every single year. Um, And every year on the far right fringe, you know, Back, all the way back to 1949, um, the you know on average the the vast majority of far right extremist violence comes from the white supremacist fringe. So we know that, and that was true last year as well. Even though the anti-government side is growing, but I think a lot of what we see happening is harder for people to recognize. You know, getting back to that kind of package idea, if they if they just if it comes in a suit or it comes in a you know a clean. Uh, aesthetic package and not in the kind of 
it couldn't be someone they know because they would they would recognize it, right? Um, I think that's the part that's been um, more recently acknowledged. Let's look at, at something like um, the, I think it was the Wisconsin legislature uh, being taken over by gun touting, AR-15 touting people and a Black Lives Matter uh, march outside. You ask a certain percentage, uh, there's, a, there's a, large, a, a, a large percentage of this population that looks at people in the Black Lives Matter as somehow a terrorist organization and somehow seeing people with guns in in the in these in these legislatures as okay uh what's the psychology what is the pathology i should say behind that thought process and and again in your studies as somebody who's actually studying this on the ground how do we fix that pathology because armed not armed uh i mean how do you fix that well, some of it is, you know, political rhetoric that from not just elected officials, but law enforcement, local sheriffs, you know, who position those armed individuals, whether they're vigilantes or local militia groups, as um, either as heroes sometimes, actually using language of heroes that valorize that, that valorize individual action coming into the streets in that way, particularly when they're there to protect the status quo, right? So some of these folks who come out to protect law enforcement or to um, sort of support, um, you know, uh, the local authorities. And then you have um, incendiary language against peaceful protesters, calling them riots, calling, um, you know, vigilante group calls for, to come out and protect the city against evil thugs, right? So you have these kind of dog whistle racist ideas that come across that way as well. So I think some of it is the rhetoric that's out there that circulates that shapes the way that people think and the way that people are positioning it, the media coverage, depending on what, you know, it's, it's so politicized, right? This kind of like how you frame it. And then a lot of it is just sits in this idea about like these American ideas about freedom and tyranny and liberty and all the way that the anti-government fringe, the anti-government extremist fringe positions their, their arguments as about, um, you know, individual rights against some kind of oppressive regime. And somehow that, that, that language, right, when coming across from these militia groups, although you can have in the Black Lives Matter process also, you know, uh, protests against oppressive regimes, against oppressive law enforcement, against police brutality. And so, and some of these scenes, you, there should be commonalities. And in fact, we have seen that in a couple of the protests um, where some of the anti-government extremists have joined forces with the Black Lives Matter protesters. But in, in a lot more cases, you're seeing that framing end up as politicized as you know, and framing the peaceful protesters as the problem rather than the ones carrying the massive, massive arms and threatening violence. Two things. I, I want to say something real quick, and that is having to do with the media. We talk about how the media actually goes ahead and presents these issues. And I have a tendency to believe that the media is uh, more than anything else. The media is lazy uh, mm-hmm. because uh, what, what happens is you can ju- uh, you can just look at the numbers. You can take a uh, you can look at numerical analysis and figure out that uh, this is where things are happening, and that the media doesn't report that. I think that's a, that is a dereliction of duty. But if we take a if we go to Kenosha and we see the the type of destruction and violence that occurred in Kenosha and what they're starting to find out now, I don't know if you did if you've got the the, the new info that showed that 
the person shooting at the police station was actually a right-wing extremist, the person yes. breaking glass, you know, um, you know, it, yeah. there's a completely difference in who caused the destruction on the day of the destruction and what we find out later. Absolutely. How do we, how do we uh, get around those types of issues? Well, some of it, I think, is is the, I mean, the media wants quick and, you know, not always and not all journalists to blame, mm-hmm. but a lot of media want quick and easy answers. They wanted to frame this in sort of terms that explain what's happening, right? And instead of waiting for actual investigations to come out that tell us. And so I think there is right now, seeing that this was, that the the armed, you know, uh, attack on a on the police precinct, I think it was, is coming out, was from an, uh, a far-right individual or a member of the Boogaloo or, a, a, you know, a, a, someone Boogaloo boys, by yeah. this Boogaloo boys, right? Um, you know, when it was blamed on the protesters, uh, you know, I think is a really good example of how this happens and how these blind spots in, you know, in the media's coverage and the public's, and, you know, public's awareness about it have to be constantly kind of called out and, and, you know, by folks like you right here pointing out that, but also in kind of other conversations and media coverage of it to remind people, I don't know what the solution is with this kind of media landscape that wants very quick clickbait, you know, very quick um, driven, where there's not as much, you know, support for journalism, funding for journalism. So they're driven a lot by ad revenue and all the kinds of things that that brings in terms of how they have to. So I know there's a bigger landscape problem there and the way the media is motivated to report on stuff. Uh, but it, I, I agree with you. I think it's very problematic to have that the quick definitive things before the investigations come out. Now, what can you tell us? About, we, we brought up the Boogaloo Boys. Uh, you know, that, that's an interesting name. What can you tell us about them and, and their position in the far right movement? Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber, signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Touch-free QR code payments. Shop safe with PayPal. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. The Boogaloo is a really interesting case because it is, uh, it's, I don't call it a movement either. It's really like an organizing or a mobilizing idea. And so it's something that has both, so it's a, it's a slang term, just for listeners who might not be aware, uh, that is a slang term that originated with a, you know, a teenage prank or joke online that was a term that came to mean the second of anything, basically. And it became, eventually came to mean the second civil war. And, um, you know, so it shows how stuff can migrate from online youth culture into offline violence. And it became embraced by these guys who use the term boogaloo to refer to second civil war or coming revolution, the idea of an overthrow of government, um, of a backlash against government tyranny. And it's, 
both been organized into kind of groups and clusters of men who participate in boogaloo type um, groups and, and actions, but also layered onto other groups. So you'll see these militia members in, in Michigan, for example, in that plot to kidnap the governor, not all of them, but a couple of them were sort of affiliated with Boogaloo. And so it becomes like a hashtag that gets mm -hmm. layered on to other, literally a hashtag. Like, so they're like a member of whatever malicious hashtag Boogaloo also. So it's a, it's a way of adding a call to civil war or revolution onto, onto existing and threatening police at the same time. Um, now, if you noticed under when President Obama came into power, uh, the militia movement exploded. A lot of the white nationalists, uh, they felt, uh, you know, the country's getting away from them. I don't know why, but I mean, yeah. that's what they thought. And, uh, and they came to pass. Now we have Donald Trump, who seems to be their, uh, their fewer. My question now is, which one was, a, which one caused a, a bigger build, build on these guys, Obama or Trump, because both has an influence, have an influence on it. Well, I think there's a couple things. I think what we saw is the explosion of hate groups launching, you know, really accelerating after Obama's elected. So it got to record levels. And then you have Trump's campaign rhetoric, the administration, and what that brought for the normalization and the mainstreaming of it. But on top of that, and the and the sort of perceived legitimation, right? The racist rhetoric, the incendiary rhetoric, the you know, polarizing rhetoric, all of that, that kind of helped mainstream and normalize and legitimate or perceived at least as legitimizing um, far right groups, they, who many of whom saw that as a call to action, uh, as we saw in the first debate this fall, for example. But it's also really important to note that globally, far right terror, right wing terror is up 320% over the last five years. So this is not just an American problem. And these guys are for the most part, you know, especially on the white supremacist fringe, extremely connected across borders, participating in an online ecosystem that is communicating, that live streams attacks, that shares, you know, bomb making materials, that um, performs for each other. And you see that, you know, and I, I use the word perform intentionally because you see like in the last two far right extremist attacks in Germany, they either wrote their manifestos or, or live streamed in English, even though their native language is German. And so they were doing this not just as a you know, white nationalist thing, but as a global white supremacist extremist attack. They really wanted this to be a global performance for others and to call others to action across borders. And so I think we have to understand what's happening in the States as part of that as well. It's, it's, part, it's definitely partly attributable to what's happening you know, with this administration, but I I also, the reason why I think that's important to understand is it's not like just one change of an administration is going to get us out of this mess. Like this is a global, it's a global problem that needs global solutions and also something that is deeper and longer in the U.S. than just, you know, one, four year, five year span of time. Now, one scary thing to me is that um, uh, the, the, the social cancer of racism uh, we all thought would be mitigated by the debts of all the old people, all those old thoughts going away. You know, I mean, I remember one time my um, nephew, he looked at me and he said, I'm going to tell you something, Tio. When you guys are all dead, things are then going to be okay. All right. That, that, that's what, and he didn't mean it 
uh, on a personal nature. You mentioned yeah. that when all the old, that old cancer is extricated, it'll be all gone. Unfortunately, what I'm seeing with these types of movement is young white men are so susceptible to it. And I want to throw the question in a different way, because is it that um, that all that the ascension, that the ascension, not the pulling down of anybody, but the, the ascension of others is a good tool to use to make them believe there's a birthright they're losing that they never had? Yeah, you raise a lot of really great points in this. And so one I want to raise is that the, you know, the, the issue of generational change. And so, you know, I think, and you also, in the very first phrase that you used, you said social cancer. And so I think, you know, this is a really important phrase. And it's one of the things I've been saying, even since before the pandemic. So it's a little bit, you know, hard to use this metaphor now. But I think for a long time, we as a society, meaning we in the US, but also globally, had thought of white supremacist extremists as a, as like a tumor or a few bad cells, whether they age out of you know, society or can be isolated, surveilled, monitored, imprisoned, cut out from society, as long as we kept them away from everybody else, right? It's like the isolated fringe. And I think that we have to think of it instead as more like a contagious virus which is, you know, yes. doesn't just die out. It resurges yes. and it comes back and it spreads online. And so it's not, it's not just a cancer that can be bounded, you know, with getting the bad cells out. It's something that does spread and, it's, and it can spread in a new generation. And we're seeing that it spreads in this new generation um, online in really unusual ways and in different kinds of spaces than we'd seen before, which is what I talk about in this book, that you see it in the mixed martial arts, you see it in, um, you see it in, uh, you know, online cooking channels and YouTube shows, you see it in, in lifestyle. Help me out you know, here because since, you just yeah. scared me a bit. When you yeah. see your, when you just said you see it in martial arts and you see it in online cooking, you mean yeah. there, there are signs that they put even in those shows that, that, that you're, yeah, I mean, there are actual shows that are set up, not only like there's a German neo-Nazi vegan cooking show, right? They like, they are using that platform to both like share recipes with people and share ideology that's racist, wow. white supremacist, anti-immigrant. And you see that on Instagram with, you know, white supremacists, like very beautiful images that are always like aesthetically pleasing, I mean, that are like a blonde woman with a braid in a field of wheat, you know, like, right. and, you know, like, or with a deer in the woods or something, but that then have these messages actually explicitly written on them that, you know, or defend, defend your people or don't mix. Right. Like, so these things that say like, basically like protect whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we're seeing that contagious spread that, that online contagion, spread in different places and spaces, which is what I try to point out in this book as like understanding how it gets mainstreamed. I had a friend tell me recently that they were looking, um, they were trying to do a home improvement project during the pandemic and looked up um, drywall like videos and, you know, ended up on this guide who does drywall. It's like a sequence of 10 videos. And so starts watching them and by like video two or three realized the guy's starting to introduce white supremacist extremist ideas but he now he's in the middle of the project he needs to watch to the end so he gets all the way to the end and by the 10th video or whatever 
it's full on white supremacist, you know, extremist ideology. So they've got, and you get something like that, you have a captive audience of people who are encountering it coincidentally because they're looking, you know, for a DIY project or whatever, how to unplug a drain. I mean, whatever you could be looking up on YouTube, it's a space where suddenly they can reach in their ideas out. And so wow. by finding places that young people already spend time, right? Um, and then and then getting recruiters or, you know, or just racists sharing their own ideology that way, right? It doesn't even have to be deliberate recruitment. Um, it, it opens up a different way to spread that contagion. Do you think that, the, I mean, how is... The, to me, that almost seemed like it is pretty well financed and pretty well organized. Uh, do we have you been able to find the head of this structure, or is it sort of a, um, a net? Is it a network based or hierarchically based or what? Yeah, there are a lot of different groups doing this. I think, and so there are, you know groups themselves do they they raise money in all different ways they sell merchandise they crowdsource online for activities and actions um they take donations sometimes they use inheritances or like wealthy you know uh, money that they've raised or earned themselves um but i think i think most of this is not happening through groups and that's i think why it's so hard for authorities and policymakers to understand it when they are pivoting from trying to understand the terrorist fringe from an Islamist extremist perspective, which is a much more hierarchical and group-based type of um, terrorist organization. When you look at the white supremacist extremist fringe, a lot of what happens is kind of radicalization through what we call kind of like self-radicalizing networks. People who spend time in toxic spaces online share dehumanizing racist memes, let's say misogynistic memes, and they get drawn into something that doesn't really have a head, right? Doesn't have a hierarchy, isn't that organized in a cell or a group. And so eventually then if they get radicalized far enough might start planning or plotting violence, but they're, that's why we have these kind of lone actors enacting violence with no particular ties. And that's different than, you know, it's harder for, for authorities to wrap their heads around how to manage extremism if you're looking at it from the top down. And one of the things I argue in this book is you know, we have been approaching it as like a top-down problem. What's the organization? What are the structures? How do they communicate, right? The way that the typical terrorism, you know, infrastructure mm -hmm. has been understood. Or we study from the bottom up. How are people radicalizing in their heads? What are the vulnerabilities, isolation, or, you know, anxiety, or perceived precarity, or, you know, um, uh, all the things that might create more vulnerabilities to white supremacist propaganda? But what I argue in the book is if you ask a different set of questions about where extremism happens by looking at these spaces and places where people encounter these ideas in the mainstream. This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies, making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. <laughs> COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. 
even though they're fringe extremist ideas, then we can start to understand a sort of different way of, of maybe attacking it or approaching it by intervening in those places and spaces and working with experts in those in those like college counselors or mixed martial arts trainers or you know folks who understand what's going on in those scenes to begin with. Now, in closing, I want to ask you to um, talk to me a little bit about COVID nineteen and the influence on uh, that and white supremacy. And the last question is: Please tell me something you wish I'd asked you. <laughs> and I simply yeah. didn't. So I just gave okay. you a twofer. Good, good. So the first thing is on COVID, yeah, we've seen a couple of different things. One is that um, obviously there's a lot more mobilization on the anti-government extremist fringe. It's been really obvious. And I think a lot of the attention on the far right has been on the anti-government side, um, which has its intersections with white supremacist extremism, but is also separate and in, in other ways, because it's not always as, as explicit as it is in the white supremacist extremist fringe. Um, and so we've seen mobilization on the anti-government side. We've seen increased circulation of propaganda. Um, you know, a lot of anti-Asian violence, a lot of anti-Semitic um, hate crimes and conspiracy theories, rising conspiracy theory participation in general on the far right fringe. And then also, you know, more vulnerabilities, like I was talking about before, the extreme isolation, lack of sense of control, um, lack of belonging or meaningful purpose, perceived precarity, which I think is different than actual precarity, but this mm -hmm. idea that, you know, uh, of economic uncertainty, all of those things create vulnerabilities to rhetoric that offer scapegoats, that offers a very black and white solution to things. And so we know that it's kind of a perfect storm of, you know, increased propaganda meeting, increased um, vulnerabilities, along with astronomical and unprecedented amounts of time online. So we just have, you know, 100 million young people across, you know, K to 12 and college students, plus those who are not in college at home, you know, online all the time uh, in ways that increase the chance of both child exploitation, but also, you know, exposure to propaganda and misinformation. So all of that is, um, you know, not great and can, can lead to um, more radicalization down the line. In terms of what I wish you'd ask that you didn't, um, is uh, I feel like one thing that doesn't often come up in these conversations that is starting to come up more often is the intersection of far-right extremism with misogyny and the mm -hmm. kind of male supremacist side of things. And, and I think for many years, um, a lot of those incel, those voluntary incelibate attacks or male supremacist attacks on women had been seen as, you know, just guys with sort of personality problems, mm -hmm. couldn't get a date or couldn't have sex or whatever. And they were lashing out and killing women in a sorority or in a yoga studio or a van attack in Toronto, you know, which have led to a lot of deaths. And, um, and I think recently there's finally a realization that the logic of male supremacy is not that different from the logic of other forms of supremacy, white supremacy, these hierarchies and the dehumanization and the attacks and the anger, and that there are also intersections. And when you look at why it is that it's men engaging and men enacting in these violent ways. I think, I hope that the coming years bring more attention to this intersection of misogyny. Why is it that the language used against that Michigan governor was so misogynistic, right? Um, when you look at the criminal complaint, I think there it's not coincidence, right? And so um, we see that the attack on a judge in New Jersey on her family or the murder of Joe Cox in the UK by a right-wing extremist that you know, women are targets in different ways on these kinds of things, but also that there's these intersections between uh, domestic violence, 
violence against women and gender-based violence and, and white supremacist extremism in ways that I think haven't really been in, untangled enough. I think and because, because you brought up that issue, I want 30 seconds more of your time because yes. to, to ask you about my response to somebody today uh, on, on, on a similar issue. And I want you to tell me uh, if, if, I, if you think I got it right. I, yeah. A friend of mine wrote on Facebook, all the male Trump supporters I know like Trump, like Trump because they get turned on by an abusive alpha male. He resembles what they desire. I would never uh, date a MAGA for safety concerns. And my response was, women have the power to force uh, that, but in my humble opinion, they acquiesce to the patriarchy in the church and politically. On my show, I point out that slavery and oppression no longer requires chains, and it is now inculcated in one's mind. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that something that you can agree with or... Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think, I think if I understand what you're saying, it's that the, the, the requirement for all each and every one of us is to challenge kind of the, the ways that we may be complicit, you know, in any structures of supremacy, including, mm -hmm. you know, um, including me as a white person, what are the ways that I, you know, despite trying to fight white supremacist extremism might, might be missing something or might be overlooking something? What are my blind spots? And the ways that men working in these spaces trying to fight it might be overlooking some of the intersections between male supremacy and white supremacy or domestic violence and misogyny or, you know, um, the, the kind of role of toxic masculinity in attracting people into these kinds of uh, macho, you know, um, valorization of violence and chest puffery that we see and what your friend was talking about. So yes, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's a constant need to be reflective, to be humble, and to be aware that, that there are always going to be intersections that we may not be paying sufficient attention to at any given time. Dr. Cynthia Miller, author of Hate in the Homeland, the new global far right. Thank you so kindly for having Thank been you. on Politics Done Right. Thank you for having me. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join. I'm Robert Conti, Chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. Unfortunately, traffic fatalities are up in the district and I need your help to reverse this trend. Seatbelt save lives and reduce the risk of death or injury. Click it or ticket. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a cucumber. poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber, signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Touch-free QR code payments. Shop safe with PayPal.